the Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It was great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Whopper. And speaking of Whoppers. <laughs> now, this isn't Hungry Jacks. You know your way around a good Whopper, don't you? A Burger King Whopper? Uh, whopper with cheese. Thank you very much. Oh, well, it is It is the off-season in the footy, so we will, we will give you some liberties. But welcome, everybody, to the Mojo Radio Show. We have a, just a cracking show. I mean, I... I <laughs> I get blown out by the quality of people who will spend time with us. In fact, I've got just a shout out very quickly to Stuart Jones, who sent me a note via LinkedIn. He said, G'day, Gary. I'm loving the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks for your commitment in keeping the thing going each week. I truly look forward to it. Cheers, Stuart. And I don't know, mate, it it made me think, it just made me think over the weekend, I'm absolutely spun out by the super impressive guest list who we've had on of recent times and also coming up. I mean, if you think come summer, we're heading to one of the most iconic beaches in the world to record live, we are going to meet John Zraski, author of Make Time. We're then going to sit down with New York Times bestseller, James Clear, which will be awesome. And he wrote Atomic Habits. I don't know if I told you, we've scored the iconic, and I mean iconic, Julia Cameron, the very recognised ah, author of wow. The Artist's Way, who was mentioned by... John Karabi. From? From The Dead Daisies, correct. Motley Crue, you name it, he's been there. Formerly with the crew. So she's coming on the show. Derek Sivers, a guy I've chased for six years, who used to own CD Baby, who is, if you haven't heard of Derek Sivers, just go on to Tim Ferriss' show. He was a, a guest many moons ago, but blew me away. Pat McNamara... <laughs> Where I'm sure, Robo, you're going to get your man ticket punched. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Another Navy SEAL who was basically blown up by an IED. He is held in very heavy, a high esteem for the Travis Mills Foundation. Travis has said, yes, he's locked in. David Allen. Now, this is a guy that I thought would be wonderful for you because he wrote Getting Things Done, which is now a 20-year iconic book in productivity, GTD. He's coming on. Ryan Hawke host of the Learning Leader podcast, is back. He's got a new book coming out. Our good mates, Logan Gelbrick and Ryan Munsey, are going on for a double show. So both of them from America together. So wow, Jeez. having said all that, and to be honest with you, there are others that I'm working on that haven't been locked in, but that 
isn't it just humbling to have the privilege, these guys <laughs> who are at the op- opposite end of the spectrum to us, high achievers, <laughs> radio hacks, they're going to spend time with us to share with our listeners, anyone who's listening, the, the best of the best to get our mojo working. And it's real. I, I find it very humbling. We have no sponsors, sadly, no advertising. We funded ourselves, but a big thank you to our friends at Patreon. Everyone who supports us on Patreon, you keep the thing going. A wh- well, there we go again, a whopping thank you. Getting ext- you're, you're salivating, aren't you? I'm getting hungry. It's only half past eight. Look, I, I mean, I totally agree with everything you say. The, the, th- the other thing that gets me constantly is the number of guests of that same calibre who also agree to come back. So we've obviously had a good enough time that they'll turn around and go, well, okay, I'm up for round two if you are. So that's kind of nice. That's what we should say is, why, why did you come back? Now, that's a very good question. (laughs) I wonder if the word curious would be in their answer anywhere. (laughs) Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. All right. Remarkable fact. Go. Remarkable fact. Well, we're the second week into a couple of Navy SEALs on the show, so I thought I'd go digging for a remarkable fact that that had something to do with Navy SEALs. Did you know that the runner-up of the first ever Iron Man was a former Navy SEAL? His name was John Dunbar. Now, John was pretty much winning for the whole race, except for the final stage of the marathon, when his support crew, which were a bunch of his seal mates, ran out of water at the drink stations and so started handing him beers instead. <laughs> Jono, big fan of the show. Shout out to Jono. What a legend. Absolutely. Good on you, Jono. Legend. This is Leif Babin, former Navy SEAL, co-author of the books Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership, president of Echelon Front, and you are listening to the Mojo Radio Show. Stand by to get some. Our guest this week worked alongside last week's guest, Jocko Willink. They were teammates. It's fair to say they were brothers, and they're now their business partners in Echelon Front, which is a leadership company. Leif Babin served 13 years in the Navy, including nine in the SEAL teams, as a SEAL platoon commander in SEAL Team 3, Task Unit Bruiser, with Jocko. He planned and led major combat operations in the Battle of Ramadi, as we heard Jocko speak of, and he also helped the Ready 1st Brigade of the US Army's 1st Armoured Division achieve victory. And Task Unit Bruiser became one of the most highly decorated special operations units of the Iraqi war. He is a recipient of, get this, a silver star, two bronze stars, and a purple heart. So as I said at the head, he's the co-author with Jocko of the number one New York Times bestseller Extreme Ownership, How US Navy SEALs Lead and Win. He's also the co-founder of Echelon Front, leadership consulting company that helps basically build high-performance winning teams in the corporate world. And he's a president of Echelon Front. He's an instructor, speaker, and a strategic advisor in all areas with last week's guest, Jocko, both of whom heading to Australia, which we'll cover off in this show. Uh, We are doing this just in front of the muster, which happens 4th and 5th of December in Sydney. Leif, after all that, mate, with great pleasure, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks for having me on. Great to be on with you. I believe you are heading down under only next week. When people meet you, say somebody meets you at the airport for the first time and they say, nice to meet you. What do you do? How do you like to reply? That's a great question. It's, uh, 
oftentimes I think what people think that Jocko and I do is like we're, that we're motivational speakers. And and uh, there's kind of an old an old Saturday Night Live Chris Farley skit. I don't know if uh, if that's familiar to to an audience in Australia, but of uh, this motivational speaker and kind of what we do. And that that's really the last thing in the world from what we do. I think what what we talk about is that we we educate leaders. Uh, on uh, we pass on leadership lessons learned that we learn on the battlefield, and uh, we train leaders and help them solve problems through the combat leadership principles that we learn. Now, I'm going to go from one acting act actor to another. Charlie Sheen actually impacted your decision to be a SEAL. Tell me about what happened and and what influenced you to join the teams. You've done your research on this, definitely. <laughs> We've got, uh, you know, I, I grew up, I wanted to be some kind of combat leader. That's that's what I wanted to do. And uh, it, it was, from the time I was playing with my G.I. Joe figures and little plastic army men out in the sandbox as a kid, all I wanted to do was was to, to be uh, some kind of a combat leader. And when I was uh, probably in about middle school, uh, you know, at, at the age of maybe, you know, 11, 12 years old, I I started uh, reading about the the SEAL teams, the Navy SEALs, the uh, Navy's special operations uh, group. We're, we're the maritime branch of, of the special operations community, and uh, so I started reading books like Rogue Warrior, uh, and and uh, I got by a guy named Dick Marcinko uh, and some other books about SEALs in Vietnam. And then a movie came out uh, shortly thereafter called Navy SEALs, starring Charlie Sheen. And uh, which is, you know, just an incredibly cheeseball movie with some uh, some lines. We we still love to quote the, those movies uh, on combat operations, and uh, and it served for a lot of good laughs for us, uh, even amidst some pretty dangerous dangerous stuff. But Charlie Sheen is is the star of that movie, and and uh, it, it was something that certainly influenced me. Of like, oh, I want to be a SEAL. This is gonna gonna help me go uh, do that. So I I went to the Naval Academy and pursue that dream, and and uh, wanted to follow that path into the SEAL teams. I didn't get selected out of the Naval Academy, so I had to go serve on on a couple of different surface ships, uh, you know, big Navy sur- surface ships, a destroyer, and then a frigate uh, before I was selected to go to the SEAL program. But I, I've got to give credit to Charlie Sheen and uh, Michael Michael Bien and uh, those guys who starred in that movie uh, who influenced me to uh, want to go into the SEAL teams. You had a very distinguished career in the SEAL teams, and – you and your partner in Echelon Front, Jocko Willink, and co-author have had a very successful career in recent times as authors. Writing extreme ownership, just explain it to me, Life, very quickly, extreme ownership. And, and my question is, does the dichotomy of leadership, the follow-up book, was that to set people kind of straight? Did people take on extreme ownership and become too extreme, take too much ownership? Was, was there, is there some dichotomy in the name of the book that then caused you to do the second book called The Dichotomy of Leadership? There is. There is. And I think that's a great, great observation on your part, Darren. There, there is definitely a uh, – look, we, we wrote Extreme Ownership to share the battlefield lessons that we learned and uh, you know, I'm very proud of that book. I think the the title, the reason, you know, of all the things we write about in the book, 
the reason we decided to title extreme ownership is because that is really the foundation upon which everything else is built. If you're casting blame and making excuses and, and blaming other people, or even just not willing to actually take a really hard look at yourself and realize that the problem isn't them or anyone else, the problem is you, uh, then, then you're never going to actually solve problems. You're never going to actually make a difference. You're never going to actually be able to improve. So it's a really important concept. And, and, and I'm proud that we chose that title and I wouldn't have it any other way. However, the dichotomy there is that uh, some people do think that, well, I've got to be extreme in order to, uh, I've got to be extreme to, uh, in, in, in order to, to uh, actually be effective as, as, as a leader. And it's interesting that I have had a number of people, even after they read the book, they will refer to the book as, as incorrectly as extreme leadership. Uh, when, when I have to correct them and remind them, it's actually extreme ownership. You're taking ownership of everything in your world, not just what you're responsible for, but everything that impacts your mission. So we, we, we had to correct that. And we saw a lot of leaders who read extreme ownership, who are really trying very sincerely to implement the lessons that, that we learned and, and that we teach to solve problems and we're struggling in one way or another. So we, we had to write dichotomy of leadership and it expands on that last chapter in extreme ownership called the dichotomy of leadership to help explain that, that leadership is really about balance. It's about finding the equilibrium between two opposing forces that are pulling you in different directions. And, and, and so I, that is why, interestingly enough, I mean, extreme ownership has continued to do well and and uh, and we've sold over two million copies of Extreme Ownership now. I'm just incredibly humbled by the success of that book and the impact that it's had. And you know, Dichotomy has since it's been out about a, a year ago. It was released, Dichotomy of Leadership. It has uh, it hasn't been as successful in that regard because it's been overshadowed by the 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 incredible success of Extreme Ownership. And yet, the people who read Dichotomy will tell us that we've had many many people read that book and say, Hey, I liked it better. I thought it was more uh, applicable or it helped me solve some problems that I was struggling with. Uh, and that's why we wrote that book to try to help people find the balance when they're going too far in one direction or another. And it's funny because I've got a copy in front of me now, even the cover of the dichotomy of leadership is black and white. Yet I've heard you guys talk about the fact that leadership is actually not black and white. There's a gray area in the middle. And that's, that's what I took from the book is just making making a case to to take pause to think about the dichotomies. What have you found to be the the biggest gray areas with this? Because once you write a book, life, you then hear other people's stories, people make comments, they give you loads of feedback, and they want to share how what they took from it and how they saw it. What have you found are the biggest gray areas that sit in the middle that between in leadership between the black and the white? Well, it's funny you bring that up, Darren, because the whole reason we decided to make the cover black and white uh, is, is because we're making the case that leadership is not black or white. It is absolutely gray. And so we're trying to create the contrast there between what people think that they should be doing versus what they should actually be doing. And uh, we actually did experiment with the cover a little bit to see, like, hey, should we put it in shades of gray? Uh, but it really uh, – I, I felt like the black and white cover was uh, – uh, was was more appropriate there, uh, you know, to, to to really define that it, it isn't black and white. And, and as far as areas that we see people struggle in, you know, one of them is ownership, right? Extreme ownership. We talk about in in the first book, extreme ownership. You've got to you've got to take extreme ownership. You have to own everything in your world, not just what you're responsible for, but everything that impacts your mission. And we also talk about decentralized command. You've got to actually empower your leaders at every level of the team to be able to step up and lead. So. 
how how do you do both things? And it, it's trying to fa- balance that dichotomy. Ultimately, you're responsible for everything with extreme ownership, but you can't do everything. If you're trying to do everything for your team, if you're making all the decisions, if they're coming to you and letting you know, you know, and 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 letting you make all the decisions, or if you're trying to solve all their problems and they're just waiting for you to solve all their problems, you're not going to have a successful team. So, so you've got to find that balance. And we see people who kind of misinterpret extreme ownership to think, well, I've got to solve all the problems. Ultimately, you're responsible for everything. That's absolutely true. But you can't solve all the problems. And you got to empower the team to actually be able to step up, solve problems, build a culture of extreme ownership where people are solving problems. And even, even if it's beyond their pay grade to actually make a decision or solve a problem, you want to create a team that's going to make that recommendation up the chain of command. Conversely, decentralized command. It is it is crucial that you empower your leaders, that leaders at every level of the team be able to step up and lead. And yet, you know, we see leaders that are like, okay, you got it, decentralized command. I want my team to step up and and, uh, and make decisions. And yet, there's some things that you just can't you can't delegate. There there are decisions that can't be delegated. There's when you're talking about putting out the the broad strategy to the team, a big new shift in the direction that you want the team to go, uh, then. You can't delegate that. The, a leader has got to be able to impart that to their team, and and so you you, you know if it's so decentralized, you know we, we talked about you, you got to be detached as a leader, but you can't be too detached that you don't actually know what's going on, and you're not able to help your team make decisions. You're not able to vector resources to them. That's a major issue. the The other one I would add to that, Darren, is is cover and move. You know, cover and move. You know, this idea that you got to work together as a team you know, breaking silos down because every team you get silos that build up and, and you get people or, or, or teams within the team that forget that it's not about them and their particular key task, but it's about the overall mission and, and how they've got to work together mutually supporting one another in order to accomplish that mission. So that's a really important thing. And people recognize that, that, Hey, you need to work together. You need to build relationships so that you can support one another uh, and make things happen and recognize that if the team wins, everybody wins, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you say, Hey, well, I did my job, but we didn't, we, the team didn't accomplish their mission, but I did my job. That other team over there didn't do their job. That's why we failed. None of that matters. If the team fails, everybody fails. But the dichotomy there is that if, if you're trying, if, if I'm trying to cover move for you, and I'm coming over to you and I'm stepping on your toes and I'm trying to do your job for you. And, and I'm doing it in a, in a way that's well-meaning. I want to help you. I want to help your team succeed. But if I'm doing it in a way that, that bruises your ego, that's causing frictions for you and your team, uh, that, that makes things more difficult or less efficient for you, then I'm actually, I'm actually creating a worse relationship and I'm actually impeding our ability to cover and move for each other uh, instead of actually creating it. So that's another one too, where we see a big dichotomy there. And, you know, as Jocko and I often say, in the dichotomy of leadership, just the recognition that and the understanding that there are these dichotomies with, you know, and, and you have to balance these dichotomies. So just the recognition that these dichotomies actually exist and you have to find that balance is really one of the most powerful tools that a leader has. Because once you recognize them, you realize, okay, I can't go too far in this direction. I can't go too far in that direction. It also helps you. Uh, adjust so that if you know you're out of balance in one area, that you don't overcorrect and and cause uh, a, a a just as bad problem or even potentially even worse. That word recognition must be a challenge though, life. Because I, I I know leaders. I, th- I think of a guy who runs a, a, a charity here in Australia, and he would be into decentralized command. The challenge is he delegates 
or has everybody do everything without taking any responsibility and without actually taking any leadership. How does, how does a leader recognize the fact? Because, you know, you say that the people can get out of balance. It's a delicate balance, which is the dichotomy. You use that word recognize. How does one recognize? Because this guy would deny it. This guy would say, no, no, it's the right thing to do. A decentralized command, I'm a great leader. But it's actually out of whack. How, how would you recognize that? Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a difficult problem, right? I mean, the, the, the biggest impediment to constructive criticism of any kind of, of, of trying to get, get better and, and improve your performance, your leadership capabilities is always ego. Ego is is the chief driver of that, and you know I, I think when you're trying to help someone who's maybe struggling in a particular area recognize that they need to do better, usually the the, the worst thing you can do is just come at them really hard, particularly if you know that they've got a, if there's an ego issue there, uh, and and I think a lot of times for leaders there's this this uh, this idea that like well my people should be just stepping up and making decisions and uh, that's the way it should be and uh, they need to just they understand the bigger picture and they should just execute. And really what that is, is you're, you're putting everything on them. You're putting everything on them. A leader has to recognize that your, your frontline leaders, your, your mid-level managers, they're not going to understand the bigger picture. They're not going to have the insight that they need to have. They're not going to understand that it's, it, that they need to step up and make decisions. Cause a lot of, a lot of leaders, we, you know, they, they want to come to a leader. A lot of those junior leaders want to come to the senior person and say, Hey, just, uh, you make the decisions and they'll allow that kind of stuff to happen. Um, or you get the people like, like you're talking about that are just step back and kind of uh, let it materialize and then want to just complain about the team. They're not doing what, what they need to do. Uh, they don't have the perspective they need to have. They don't get it. They don't, they're not thinking strategically. But the reality is they're never going to do that. And it's, it's the senior leader's job to communicate that to the team, to train, to mentor them. And a lot of times we get complaints about, well, you're, you know, it was people tell me or Jocko or the other members of our team, uh, as we work with their their leaders at a company, will come in and say, "Well, you you're telling us about to, we need to use decentralized command, but I just don't trust my leaders. They're not stepping up and they're not making calls, or they don't do the things they're supposed to do." And then I'll say, "Okay, great. Well, uh, let's look at your training program. You know, how many times a week are you actually sitting down with them? Are you are you mentoring them? Are you training them? Are you?" Are you letting them shadow you to make decisions? Uh, are you actually spending some time with them as they make decisions to help them understand why you might make a different one or you know, what the strategic implications of what they're doing is? And, and, and the answer is almost always they don't have it. The training program doesn't even exist. And they're just trying to, they're just blaming their people for not making the decisions they would make or having the insight and understanding that they have. Uh, and, and they're not doing anything to train them. And, and that is a leader's job. They're not going to know that. They're not going to understand it. You know, I think the general rule of thumb is if you assume that your people understand, you know, just just a, uh, a little bit, they actually understand a fraction of probably what you think they understand as far as the bigger strategic picture, where you're trying to go, what the implications of, of what they're doing, you know, have on the overall success of the team or, or failure of the team. And uh, so that is a leader's job is to train them. And I think once a leader recognizes that, you know, he or she can then take action to mentor, train, and improve uh, their leaders, and their leaders are going to step up. Or you're also, if they, if they can't step up, then uh, you're going to actually recognize that maybe they just don't have the capability to make those kind of decisions, and you might need to move them into a different position or uh, ultimately you know, get rid of them and get somebody else that can. Dichotomy gold, Robbo. DG, right there. Dichotomy gold. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> As a SEAL platoon commander, life. 
you saw a lot of success and you've been awarded for that success. When you step away from yourself and look at back at yourself, as a leader, what is, what was your greatest strength? Well, that's not an easy question there. That is, uh, <laughs> that is I, I think, my greatest strength. Um, look, I, I think we talk about the, the greatest, the most important quality in a leader is humility. The most important quality in a leader is humility. So that makes it very hard, I think, to look at yourself and say, hey, what's, what's your greatest strength? Uh, I, I think, if anything, what, uh, what I was afforded from some really difficult, dangerous, violent combat operations, you know, in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006, where we're almost every single day engaged in, uh, you know, in these, in these, these really difficult and dangerous combat situations. It, it was, we were humbled by those. We were humbled by those situations. And, and every time that I started to get, uh, you know, feeling a little cocky or feeling a little arrogant or feeling like, hey, we got this down. Boy, boy, we would just get smashed down with with a, a you know the enemy maneuvering on us in a way that we hadn't foreseen, or taking casualties and 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 just having to carry that burden and understand what we should have done better and what we should have learned from it. And and, and I think I'm I'm so thankful for the opportunity to have lived through those incredibly humbling operations, and uh, and just to, just to realize how difficult you know combat can really be, because that was the ultimate teacher for me. And, and it I, you know I think that's. To a man, you know, when you talk to people who have been in really difficult combat situations, you can talk to Navy SEALs and Rangers and, you know, Aussie SAS and, and uh, you know, people who have been at the highest levels of, of uh, you know, the military. And you can tell right away whether or not they've actually done, they've done anything significant. Because if they're cocky, uh, if they're arrogant, you can tell that they've never truly been tested. They've never truly been tested. And I think... You know, when when you talk to somebody who's seen a lot of combat, uh, they are incredibly humble. They're the most humble people you'll you'll ever meet because they have been humbled uh, in, in a way that uh, that that others in life maybe couldn't be uh, when they realize they, it, it makes you realize your shortcomings in a huge way. Uh, and I thank God for that. I think I think because of the experiences that I've had, um, it, it humbled me in a way that that that. Uh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't have that humility otherwise I wouldn't have a full detailed understanding uh, of my significant shortcomings and so if I had to give myself a strength uh, after you know having lived through those experiences in the Battle of Ramadi it was the recognition of uh, of of just uh, of the 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 vast shortcomings that I actually have and how I don't have all the information and I can jump to conclusions on things and I can get get cocky and, and think that I've I've got the answers figured out. Uh, and I thank God for that experience to uh, have put me in check, you know, when it comes to that. Do you know, something I heard you talk about that took my mind back to a previous guest who I'm, I'm sure is a friend of yours, and I, I, I'm almost certain was a guest on Jocko's podcast, was a guy called Jason J. Redman. Is he a mate of yours? He is. Yeah, I've, I've known Jay for a long time. Yeah, Jay, Jay's been on Jocko podcast, and uh, yeah, Jay is, Jay is a great guy. When he wrote that the, the book, The Trident, you know, his book, he talks about uh, – he, he speaks in such a humbling manner because he was humbled by his, his experiences, his career, and obviously, you know, ultimately in, in combat as well. He, it was the first time, because we've all seen the movies, seen videos, read the books. When I spoke to Jay, he took us to that moment and of him lying in the dirt, looking up at the stars, still in a firefight. But he described 
the sound of I think he described it as supersonic bullets that were whizzing past his head, and it it was so graphic the way that he described the sound of a bullet passing. And then I heard you talk about being in battle, and the word you used was there's huge kinetic energy. Like I can only imagine how loud the noise is. Men are screaming, explosions, there's chaos around. When you look back at that time, what did that teach you as a leader about taking a moment to become calm? Because in the heat of battle, you have to make big, big decisions. How, how did you, what have you learned from that that helps you to make the right decision now, even in a family, personal, or business situation? Well, that is, uh, it teaches you you have to emotionally detach. And that's one of the, the most difficult things that you can teach uh, a young leader is just how crazy it's going to be. You know? and, and Jay does a great job of describing that in his book when he talks about it. Um, it's, you know, I, I grew up, as I said, I wanted to be a combat leader my whole life. That's what I wanted to be. And I, uh, I, I longed, I read every book I could. I watched every movie I could. That's what I wanted to do. And, and the first time I got in a really – uh, significant firefight in in Ramadi in 2006. I mean, I I, I didn't know what the hell was happening. I, I had no idea wh- who we were getting shot at by how far away they were. You know, whether there were five guys shooting at us or, or 25, whether it was friendly shooting at us or enemy. I mean, just total chaos and and the kinetic energy of those rounds. You know, not just the snap. You know, of of a the a super shot like round as you described, but just, you know, when you're standing next to a concrete wall on a patrol, uh, and, and, you know, through the city streets and alleyways, they would have these, you know, eight, 10 foot high concrete walls on either side. If you can imagine the incoming kinetic energy of a round like that, it feels like a single round, you know, is, is, is it, think of the biggest, strongest, uh, you know, rugby player, you know, smashing the wall, uh, with, with the sledgehammer as hard as they, as they possibly can, you know, and each incoming round has that kind of kinetic energy. And if, you know, if it's a belt fed machine gun shooting at you, you've got, you know, you've got, uh, 700 rounds a minute coming in, <laughs> coming in at that, at that rate of fire with that kind of kinetic energy and, you know, slapping some RPG rockets and explosions. I mean, it's just total chaos and it's overwhelming. So what you have to do in that regard you know, when bad things happen, it's it's not usually one or two things that happen at the same time. It's it's you know just Murphy's law. You know the the, the law of, of uh, in combat we call it Murphy's law that if if bad things um, can happen, they will happen, and when they do happen, it's not one or two things. It's it's five or six or ten things, twelve things that are happening right now, and you have to handle all these problems at the same time. That's what we call, you know, you, that's when you have to prioritize next. You have to detach yourself. And there's a lot, emotionally, you have to detach from that too uh, as well. And it, it becomes very difficult in order to do that. How we teach our leaders to be able to do that is to relax, look around, make a call. Relax, literally take a breath, calm yourself down, because no one makes good decisions when they're emotional about things. Uh, you know, we, if you, you think about what, the times you're angry at someone and you're typing on, a, on the email and... Uh, you know, you're, you're all angry about it. Um, it, it is, uh, you get, you get emotional. That's not the time to send that email. You want to hit delete on that email. Instead, it's, uh, you want to relax, calm yourself down, take a breath. Don't get emotional. Look around that. That's that detachment to pull yourself back. Look at the bigger picture. Okay. With all that's going on right now, what's actually really important. 
and then make the call. Then you, you, then you can actually execute toward accomplishing that highest priority task. And, you know, to, to your question there, Gary, I, I think it, it is a, it is, it, it's, it is so hard to, uh, to mostly detach from, from the people that we're closest to. And so particularly, uh, I have the hardest time doing this with, with my wife and, and my kids because, uh, or people that you have a longstanding relationship with, you know, my brother and sisters, my, you know, my mom and dad, the, my work colleagues that I've had a longstanding history with, uh, that you go way, way back with, you're very emotionally close to those people. And it becomes very, very hard to detach emotionally from that. So it's easier to lose your cool. It's easier to get spun up about things. And, and that's where it's actually most important to detach. So that detachment piece is really crucial and, and emotional detachment. When you can see, when I can see my wife's getting angry about something, you know, when, when she's getting spun up, then I need to actually, I get to detach. I need to calm the situation down. Uh, I, I need to actually, you know, assure everything's okay or help her out, you know, with, with the situation that she's, she's dealing with, whether it's our kids or, or, or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's really hard to do that. It's very hard to do that. It's easy to get spun up about things. And then of course that escalates and that's like throwing fuel on the fire. Next thing you know, you got a major problem. So, um, that emotional detachment you have to learn in combat, uh, to be able to stay calm, you know, make good decisions, relax, look around, make a call in order to prioritize and execute under pressure is immensely applicable to, uh, what you're doing in business every day. And certainly at your, in your family and your home life. Uh, and I, and I think when my kids are going crazy and, uh, I, I'm wanting to get spun up, it's actually a great training opportunity for me to practice that under pressure. You just mentioned your wife, Jenna, and your kids. It, it's, it's interesting. There are a lot of people who carry work into the home. And Todd Herman, who was a previous guest on the show, talks about an alter ego. And one of the challenges today is people bringing their business world into the home because they can't turn off that business alter ego. As a SEAL, did you have, Todd talks about having a totem sometimes where you change clothes or you, you do something which goes from, I'm a SEAL, now I'm a dad, now I'm a husband. Was there ever a process you went through life when you got home? Did you have a totem? Did you have a process you went through to make sure that what was left on the battleground or in, in, in the unit didn't come into the home? Did you have a process for that or a way of thinking about it? I didn't really do, uh, I, I didn't really do a lot of thinking about that when I first came home. And, and I can tell you my mom and dad, I wasn't married at the time when we got, got when we were in Ramadi, when we came home, but you know, my mom and dad talked about how I got a little spun up or reacted to things maybe a little, little quicker than I should. Um, you know, I think the, the you definitely need to need to take a step back though and detach and think about things. And the one thing I am thankful for, and what what did give me a process was the leadership instruction that I taught. You know, when we came back from Ramadi, Jocko went and took over running the the training for all of the West Coast SEAL teams. I took over um, the training for uh, the junior officer training course we call it, which is. Basically, every SEAL officer that graduates from our training pipeline goes through a five-week leadership course, and I taught that for two years. And it really helped me to, de- to think very deeply about what I learned, uh, you know, evaluate what had worked for me and what didn't work for me and how I could have done things a lot better. You know, and, and I think teaching and instructing people, uh, you have to know what you're talking about. You know, when, when you're getting pushed back and people are asking questions – uh, it, it helps you think very deeply about about what you learn. So that was that was a really important process for me uh, that that helped me out. Um, and look, I make mistakes all the time. 
I mean, I, I, I make mistakes just, just as any of us do. What is really important is uh, that, that you take ownership of that. And, and look, I can tell you, my wife, Jenna, uh, when I'm casting blame and making excuses, she reminds me that I, I wrote a book called Extreme Ownership and I bet she'll take it. So, <laughs> so that is, uh, <laughs> that is, uh, that is uh, something that uh, happens uh, more often than uh, I'd like to admit. But uh, the reality is when you do screw up, all you got to do is take ownership of that. I mean, it's, it's very easy and, and really liberating. It, it's liberating to realize that, hey, I make excuses. I, I, I make mistakes. And, and if I'm casting blame or making an excuse, um, then all I got to do is say, you know what? I was blaming that all on you and that's actually my fault. Here's what I could have done to, to, uh, to fix that problem or help you through that, that issue. Uh, and, you know, Jocko and I do that as well. Uh, when we make mistakes and, and, and he'll call me and we're fighting over, you know, who can take ownership of the, uh, those things. This, this stuff actually works. It, it really does work. Uh, and that it, it deescalates the situation and helps you actually come to a solution where you can actually implement, uh, you know, implement that solution and solve the problem and, and instead of just continuing to deny there's a problem or make excuses and the problem never actually gets solved. So all you got to do uh, is acknowledge that you didn't make the, the right decision or you got spun up there. Or you didn't do what you should have done. And, uh, and, and you can, you can fix those problems. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think as far as the process goes, it was, it was very helpful for me to take a step back and, and, and evaluate what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, everything that we wrote about in extreme ownership, uh, everything we wrote about in economy leadership and, and what we do now teaching these leadership principles to, uh, apply to people's in their, in, in business and life in whatever arena they, they happen to be in. Um, it's the same thing that we taught in those, those, uh, seal leadership programs. It, it's the same exact thing. We use the, the same terminology. We're not teaching the tactics of, 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 uh, you know, uh, combat operations, uh, specific tactics, but the, the hard, that, the tactics are easy. Uh, the, the hardest thing is always getting people to do what you need them to do, explaining things in a way that they understand and get, uh, and dealing with people's egos. Those, those are always the most difficult parts of any combat operation. Uh, and of course that applies in any arena, in any situation. We've got a saying on the wall life in the studio that says game recognizes game, which came from Michael Gervais, who's the mental performance coach for the Seattle Seahawks, the very successful NFL franchise in America. And it's about the game you put on gets recognized by those around you. And I, I wonder when you look in the mirror, what's the game you want to represent for your own children? Like what's the game you'd like them to take on? What, what do you want them to see and replicate? I want them to, I want them to, to recognize the lessons that we learned and not have to learn those the hard way, the, the way I did. You know, and when I see young kids now, Jocko's written these series of books, the, the Warrior Kids series, and it's really about teaching these principles at, at a very young age. You know, when uh, he writes about a character who doesn't know their times tables, who, you know, can't swim, who is getting bullied at school and doesn't know how to defend themselves, uh, you know, and, and he's got a, a SEAL uncle, Uncle Jake, who tells him that uh, – the good news is all these problems are fixable and he's completely in control uh, of, of these situations. And it just takes a little discipline to, to teach yourself and train yourself and get better at all these things. Uh, and and I, that's what I hope that they, they can take away. Uh, and in fact, I, I took a piece of advice from, uh, you know, Chris Kyle, the, the uh, American sniper uh, that, that you know, wrote the book and the movie was based on. Uh, Chris was our lead sniper point man in, 
in uh, in Charlie Batoon and, and was an amazing guy and, and was a close friend of mine. And his his wife, uh, Taya, had uh, told me when the book Extreme Ownership came out, she said, you should sign a copy to your kids because you never know what's going to happen. And uh, it took me a little while to get to that, but I, I, I did that. And I took her advice to make sure, you know, if something ever happened for me, I want them to have those lessons learned. And, and I want them to understand that this, this applies, you know, not just on the battlefield, but anywhere in life. And if they can take ownership, if they can look at themselves in the mirror with humility and recognize where they need to get better, and then they have the discipline to do the hard work necessary uh, to, to better themselves, they're going to have the freedom to execute at the highest level possible uh, to, to open doors. So that to me is, uh, is most important. And, uh, and, I, and I hope that they can learn that at, at an age far uh, far earlier than I did, which is going to set them up for success and they'll be a lot further ahead in their life. Like just, I'm going to take an off-ramp here. The movie American Sniper, when you talk to Taya, you as a man who served alongside Chris, you had your brother Mark Lee in the movie. You see all these things in the movie and there's not a week that goes by where I don't watch that film. I've watched it hundreds of times. How... How well does that represent Chris in your mind as someone who was serving with this guy who knew really well? How does does the movie does the movie give us a true insight into Chris Carl? I don't think so at all. I, I don't think so at all. I mean, they, you know, they they went to a lot of trouble to replicate Chris's gear, um, but uh, the the person that's depicted in the movie was not the Chris that I knew. Um, you know, I I appreciate the movie for telling Chris's story. It reflects on what uh, not only Chris and his family went through, but so many hundreds of thousands of of military families, uh, you know, in the United States and Australia and and uh, and elsewhere have gone through, you know, since the, the the war on terror began, you know, after September 11th, 2001, and so multiple deployments and what they go through. And I, I appreciate that the movie told their story and maybe uh, opened that the eyes of a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't know about it, but. Uh, you know, the, the real Chris Kyle, uh, was absolutely hilarious. He, he was not this dark and brooding guy. Um, you know, he, we laughed hysterically all the time. Uh, Chris was the, just the biggest kind of boldest talking gregarious, most gregarious guy in the room. And, you know, he just was a, he was just a pleasure to be around. He was so much fun to be around. He was a great sniper, great at what he did. He certainly wasn't born that way. He worked really hard to be that uh, you know, to, to, to get that way and was intimately involved in the planning and, and preparation. And, uh, you know, the, the movie, I, it, it just, it also doesn't reflect the, the combat operations, the way they actually happened. I mean, we, it kind of makes it look like it was just five or six guys running around on the battlefield. And the reality was you know, we were going out with 30 or 40 or 50, uh, you know, guys, not, not only, uh, maybe, maybe that was 18 or 20, uh, seals and, and our, explosive ordnance disposal personnel, our bomb technicians, but we also had Iraqi soldiers with us. We also had army, uh, uh, soldiers with us, U S army soldiers. We had, we had, uh, U S Marines with us oftentimes. And, and, and we worked very closely in conjunction with the, uh, U S army tankers, the guys driving the tanks and the Bradley fighting vehicles and, and, uh, or the Marines who own, you know, part of the battle space who'd come out to rescue us. And those guys, those guys risk their necks over and over and over again to come out and bail us out. Uh, and, and it doesn't really reflect that in the movie. We couldn't have done anything that we did, you know, without, without their support. So in my mind, the, the actual operations that we were a part of to some of the biggest battles, 
particularly on August 2nd, 2006, when, when, when Ryan Job was, was shot and Mark Lee was killed. There, it's 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 a lot closer. If you want to, it's a lot closer. If you want to watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan, the end of that movie, where it's just rubble pile buildings and, and tank battles going on in this close quarters urban combat, uh, and guys kind of hopping from building to building under fire. That that's what that battle was like. It was a lot closer to something like like you see in the end of that movie than it was, uh, you know, to to what's depicted in in American Sniper. I've heard you say a couple of times that. You, if you were asked to go back and serve again, you would do it in a heartbeat. If you were given that opportunity, now that you've written these books and in, a, in an almost, almost a way academically analyse, tell stories, review, and then have to write about it, talk about it, teach it to corporate, having done all that, if you went back to serve, what's the one key thing you would change about your own leadership style or your own standard operating procedures life? What, what, what's the one thing you would take back and do differently? That is a great question, Gary. I, I think the, uh, the biggest thing that I would do differently is not take for granted that people understood why we were doing what we, we were doing. And I you know, I wrote about this in, in that chapter leading up and down the chain of command in, in extreme ownership, and particularly that leading down the chain of command section. I think so often, just as we, we, we talked about earlier, like leaders take for granted that their people understand what's going on, why, you know, why we're doing what we're doing, why we're focused on these operations. You know, I, I had, uh, that was a real learning lesson for me. I mean, there was, at, at the end of that, you know, almost seven months, we were on the ground there in Ramadi. By the time we came home, I had a handful of guys who loved what they were doing, believed in what they were doing, would have stayed even an additional six months or a year longer if they could have. Some of them even requested to do that and, and were turned down as, as, uh, as a result. But, but they believed and they understood why we were doing what we were doing. And then I had a handful of guys who were burnt out, who were negative, who you know, just were, were ready to go home. And, and it, had, uh, uh, it had their feeling. Look, I, I, my hat's off for those guys. I put them in dangerous, difficult situations. But I realized the difference between those guys is that the, the ones who were eager to stay and believed and understood why we were doing what we were doing and all the steps that we took to mitigate risk, you know, why we were focused on certain operations uh, and not others, they understood they had some ownership of the plan, some, even a small piece of that, that plan. They had some ownership. They had some insight into, into the overall strategic mission we were trying to accomplish. They knew that we had turned down some operations because they were too dangerous in order to focus elsewhere. The, the guys who were burnout, who were negative, most of them, they, they had no ownership at all. They just show up to a, a, a brief and say, man, what, what are we doing tonight? You know, what did Badman come up with tonight? It's going to get us killed. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they didn't have any context or understanding of that. And, and as a result of some of that negativity, I, I pulled back from really spending more time with them or giving them ownership. And I should have done the opposite of trying to find something to give them ownership of, uh, to, uh, of sitting down with them, really explaining to them why we're doing this, the impact that our operations are actually having, uh, you know, what the overall arching goal is and how our missions are so crucial in supporting this overarching goal of, of securing, you know, this city uh, and ultimately lowering the level of violence, uh, you know, over time. And, and had I done that, I think we'd had, uh, we'd had a lot better results. And so I would do that from the beginning, uh, knowing how crucial that is for any leader to do that. 
And I think I would have uh, very few people who would be negative as a result. Uh, and I think I'd have a lot more people who had ownership and who understood and we'd have a lot more effective team as a result. It's funny when you say that, Leif, because I heard you say that ambiguity down the ranks is a failure of leadership. Yet so often you will have leaders say to somebody like a consulting firm or a, a guest speaker at a conference, basically come in and fix my team. It's the team. They're not doing this. They don't understand. They won't execute. It's them, them, them. Get that what you've just said is that the leader should be taking ownership of the ambiguity. That's that's it, it that that's the dichotomy, isn't it? Well, it's 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 actually firmly in the leader's wheelhouse, right? It is your job as the leader to explain why the team is doing what they're doing and what the ultimate purpose is. And so there, if there is ambiguity, if they aren't doing what they're doing, that's, that's, that's on the leader a hundred percent. And there actually shouldn't, there's, there's uh, there shouldn't be any ambiguity about that, right? It, it is totally the leader's fault. And, and that's what we help people understand, uh, you know, is when, when it's the classic case, the, the, these, these guys on the front line or these ladies on the front line, they don't get it. The frontline troops don't get it. That's what, that's what we hear a lot. We heard it in the military as well. And the reality is if the frontline troops don't get it, whose fault is that? It's your fault. It's the leader. It's ultimately the senior leader's fault for allowing the frontline troops not to get it because it's your job is to make them get it. Now, the other thing that we hear and, 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 and the other side of this too is that um, we often hear on the front lines, well, the people, you know, the, those folks at corporate headquarters, they don't get it. It's, and it's no different in the military either. You know, the, the, the generals or the admirals that are so far away from us, they're not down here on the front lines. They don't know what's, what's, uh, what's going on. There's an old saying in the military. It's been around for a long time called, uh, it, we call them REMFs, R-E-M-F, which stands for rear echelon mofo. And, uh, those are the people in the back that, uh, uh, you know, to have no idea what's going on. And, and they're saying the frontline troops don't get it. So there's, it goes both ways. Cause if the front, if the, if the senior leaders don't get what's going on, on the front lines, whose fault is that? It's the frontline leaders fault for doing that. And you know, that, that was a big recognition I had to come to, but of, yeah, they don't know what's going on down here on the front lines, you know, and from the distant headquarters, you know, that's located 30 miles away from us. Well, why is that? because they're reading my reports they're they're they understand you know if if they're not educated about what's going on here whose fault is that it's my fault for not pushing information up the chain which is what leading up the chain is all about so so it goes both ways uh and it's on leaders to be able to push that down the chain push the why down make sure the team understands and and every time we encourage senior leaders to visit with their frontline leaders to sit down with their frontline troops and actually explain the why, explain the, the big strategic initiative and where they're going. Uh, I have never seen a case yet where it wasn't extremely well received and, and the frontline troops say, man, we need more of that. We need more of that. We need more of that. So uh, you can't do that enough. I think it's crucial to do that. But again, it goes up the chain as well from the frontline leaders. You got to push up the chain, lead up the chain, educate, push information, you know, push what we call situational awareness so that senior leaders do know what's going on on the front lines and, and the recognition that we're all in this thing together. That, you know, we can't have these silos between you know, senior leadership and frontline uh, troops that are executing. We got to recognize we're all in this thing together and we're all trying to win together. You know, we had a, a terrific example of that only a couple of weeks ago with, I'm sure, another guy you know, Evan Hafer from Black Rifle Coffee Company. And he was a guest on the show and he spoke about the mission for 
Black Rifle Coffee Company, who I, I read only this week are now an $80 million company that started in 2015, putting out over I, a million tons of coffee beans. That's incredible. Yeah, it's in, it, it is. But you know what's really, it's just such a great case study, life to take exactly what you just said and show it in a corporate environment. Because one of the things that Evan said, and his partner, Matt Best and Jared, they've all said the same thing, is that the business is centered on a mission that they promote outwardly as well as inwardly. And it was just a profound moment because if you go ambiguity, mission in, I would say, the majority of corporate world, there is complete ambiguity, not just in the ranks, but also in the leadership teams and the boards who couldn't even state the mission. So this is, I find this to be such a powerful tool and Black Rifle Coffee Company is showing how you can take that military approach to mission and endeavoring to remove that ambiguity, but show it in the corporate world. And I don't know. Are you seeing? Are you seeing people starting to execute this? Well, when we see companies that are successful, it's because they're executing. They're executing well. And I, but the, the important thing to recognize here, though, is that it doesn't have to come from the top. You know, when when we were in Ramadi in two thousand six, there was a colonel in charge of five thousand six hundred troops. You know, if we had just sat there and waited for the generals in Baghdad or some general admiral from the Pentagon to come come over and sit down with us and explain to us the the greater mission and what we're trying to accomplish, we'd probably still be sitting there waiting for that right now. So it's really incumbent upon leaders that are you know connected to the problem uh, to say, okay, what actually needs to happen here in order for us to win? And we're gonna we're gonna make a recommendation up the chain. Obviously, we have to get approval for that, but that's what happened in Romani. Uh, and, and that's what happens, uh, anywhere. And, and, and oftentimes we'll see leaders are like, well, someone needs to come explain it to me on the front lines about why we're doing what we're doing. Oftentimes I can take a step back and say, okay, well, uh, let me think about it for a second. Your company wants to be more successful. They want to be more profitable. They want to be more efficient. You want to take over, you know, uh, a greater share of the market from your competitors. Uh, you know, they, they want to in, increase, uh, the, the products and services that we that we have so that we can build out our customer base. You can come to those conclusions in a, in a, in, in a microsecond if you can just detach uh, and think about that. And you can really see, okay, well, what can I do to help the company and its mission uh, in order to do that? So, look, if it comes from the top, that's even better. And certainly, I, I haven't met Evan, but uh, uh, Jocko's been on, on the podcast uh, with Evan and Matt and those guys, and uh, and I'm certainly drinking <laughs> Black Rifle Coffee and what those guys are doing. I'm very proud of their success. Mm. Uh, and they recognize, you know, from their military experience how important it is to relay that mission in a manner that's simple, clear, concise, that everybody can get, everybody can understand. You know, we talk about mantras and how important that is. Uh, you know, and if you've got a, a, a mantra that the team actually lives and breathes by and talks about that can really help drive their, their success, that's a really important thing. And I think, you know, if leaders at the senior level understand that, the more they do, the more successful the company is going to be. So to answer your question, where uh, do we see it happening? Uh, we absolutely do see it happening, and it is happening uh, in the most successful companies. And the, and the companies that are struggling, that aren't as successful as they want to be, uh, they're not doing it well enough, and they, they need to do it better. I'm going to start wrapping this thing up because I'm very mindful of our time together. You, When you went through basic training, 193 men went in, 44 got through training, but only 18 went on to deploy. What separated you 
and the other 17 guys? Well, actually, only only 18 of the 44 were uh, were originals that graduated in one shot. They didn't get rolled back or didn't fail a test or something like that. So of the 44 that graduated, only 18 were originals that started with that 193. Why, Life? What what separates you and those 17 men? What what are the attributes of those 18 that got you through? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I think when people take on SEAL training, we have about a 70%, 70 80% uh, attrition rate on average, you know, so, somewhere in there kind of floats, floats around. Um, and it's a, it's a great training program. I mean, there's a lot of great training programs in the U S military and the Australia military or elsewhere as well. But, you know, I, I think what sells, sets those people apart is that, um, that they looked in the mirror and decided that that's what they want to do. And, uh, they were going to overcome whatever hardships or obstacles were in their way in order to be successful. And, and it's, it's a really crucial thing uh, to, to do that. And I think the guys that end up quitting our training program, they, they think, they think it's, well, if I'd have just done more pull-ups and preparation, or if I'd have run or swam more, or spent more time on the, on the physical stuff. The reality is it's hard for everyone. You know, the thing about our training is it's going to be hard for everybody. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, you really just have to be able to overcome those hardships and, and thank God that that training is hard because, you know, the, the training is, is, chump change compared to actual combat operations. I mean, I was more physically tired, uh, you know, sleep deprived, uh, exhausted, emotionally overwhelmed, you know, in, in combat, you know, a, a thousand times greater than anything that I, that I ever experienced in training, despite the hardships of, of hell week where you sleep, you know, maybe, uh, just a couple of hours in, in a, you know, five day period, uh, et cetera. So, uh, our training is hard, but combat is much, much harder. And, and, you know, we want people that are going to excel in those environments who are willing to overcome what, what other, whatever obstacle is in front of them. So that to me is, it's, it's really just about the, the willingness to take a hard look in the mirror and recognize, Hey, things are going to be hard. They're going to be tough. Uh, but I'm going to be able to, I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to actually get, get through this, no matter the difficulties. I've read that waterboarding was used as part of the training methods for the SEAL teams. Was that the case when you went through, or do you know of that happening? Uh, definitely was the case, and it wasn't just the SEAL teams. Uh, you know, it, I, I kind of laugh now, and we, you know, we've the the our, our culture is kind of just uh, decided that waterboarding is is torture, so we can't do it to the worst human beings on the planet. Uh, when we went through it, it was called training, and, uh, <laughs> and they didn't do it just to SEALs or Green Berets. Or, you know, they did it to, I mean, there was a, there was a 18 year old female air crewman getting waterboarded alongside us when we went through our SEER training program, which is the, uh, basically if you're behind enemy lines, uh, that, that's SEER train, you know, trains you to, be, to deal with a captive situation. And, and it was to simulate, you know, uh, and it, it, look, waterboarding sucks. It's not fun. Uh, there's no question about it, but, uh, <laughs> it, it certainly wasn't torture. And we went through a lot in training that was a lot worse than waterboarding. Yeah, I'm sure. Life, to bring this to a close, you have done your equipment check. You have your mission briefing. You've double-checked. You've cross-checked. You're good to go get some, as you would say. What song is the soundtrack for you when you go to battle? If we could play a song that would be playing in the back of your mind, what would be the soundtrack? Well, we've, we've, Joppa and I have been asked that a number of times on uh, social media about like what was our rolling out song before we went out on missions. You know, like we were going to just jam out some Pantera, you know, old school Metallica or something before we launched on the operation. And uh, the reality was, 
there was no soundtrack because we were constantly trying to think about what what did we miss? What did we overlook? You know, I'm going to do a, a, a triple, quadruple check on, on the grid coordinates to make sure that I got everything programmed in right. I'm going to look over my map. I'm going to think through the, uh, you know, with the mobility commander where he's going to be. I'm going to talk through Jocko about what his position is going to be. Think about any last minute things that, that maybe we hadn't thought about. And, you know, there always are those butterflies in your stomach of like, okay, what did we miss? What are we not prepared for? Because I, I think, you know, if you're just sitting there thinking like, we've done everything, we, you know, and, and what, what can the bad guys possibly do that we haven't seen? We got this thing in the bag. Uh, that's when you're going to get your ass handed to you on the battlefield. So um, the soundtrack for me was, was, there was no soundtrack. It was just thinking through uh, what did I miss? What, what are I what not thinking about? Let, let me write down the critical stuff that I need. And, and Jocko and I would usually be the last people in the mission planning space, maybe along with our uh, radio man, uh, you know, just just making sure that we had everything dialed, um, you, you know, to, to think through any of those combat operations. So let me put this one to you then. Uh, it's Saturday night back in training, basic training or uh, SEAL team training. You got the night off. You and the boys are dumping, jumping into the car, heading, in, heading into town for the night. What, what track goes on the radio then? <laughs> uh, well... Uh, we we uh, we definitely like to rock out for sure with uh, do some do some heavy stuff and um, if you guys can come join us at the muster you'll get to see that our soundtrack is uh, is uh, <laughs> Tool is Metallica is nice. Pantera uh, yeah. you know there's uh, there definitely is uh, is some some good stuff Audio Slave is always oh. a, a favorite as well um, kind of kind of some good rolling out songs but I, to to give you an understanding of that I, I we did. We had an opportunity in Ramadi. Uh, you guys may appreciate the story here. We had a uh, they, they had a remote control tank uh, that had a big mine roller on it. So you know this is a seventy ton M1 Abrams tank that was had a remote control and had this huge mine roller in the front. <laughs> they could drive this thing down the street uh, and, and set off uh, IEDs, you know, the roadside bombs. So we thought, man, this thing is remote control. This is awesome. It'll drive through buildings. Uh, so one of my guys and I said, you know, what we should do is light this thing on fire. We're going to paint uh, <laughs> BTF on the side of it. And, uh, and, and you know, the, the, we stood for Big Tough Frogman. That was kind of our unofficial mantra in, in charter between Tasking and Bruiser. And we're going to drive this thing down the street, just crushing buildings. And the enemy's not going to know what's going to happen. I was like, yeah, we need to jam some awesome soundtrack, like maybe Pantera, Cowboys from Hell, which is one of my personal favorites. Um, and Jocko and I uh, have had a debate. I, I, I I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Pantera Cowboys. From I was like, we're going to jam this out. And the other SEAL said, no, no, they're going to be expecting something like Pantera or Metallica or Tool. He's like, he's like, we're actually going to jam Phil Collins' Susu Studio <laughs> because they're not going to, they're no. going to have no idea what the hell is happening uh, as this this tank that's on fire, smashing buildings, jamming out to <laughs> Phil Collins' Susu Studio. That's Gary's favorite song. You've uh, nailed it. It's perfect. Hi there. This is Phil Collins here. <laughs> Hello, I'm Phil Collins. I uh, I thought that was pretty funny. I thought you guys might appreciate that. That's but, uh, awesome. I, I thought he had a great point. I was like, I love point that. taken, touche. It's going to be Phil Collins, Susu Studio. Let's do it. <laughs> That's killer. Uh, you are heading to Australia, heading to Sydney. The muster is on December 4 and 5 in Sydney. We had Jocko on the show last week talking about the muster, which uh, the other thing that for anybody listening who we've had, I don't know if you've seen the news over there, life, but we in Australia here, we have had the worst bushfires that we've ever had in our country's history. 
there are, I think, just over a million acres, a million hectares have been lost on the eastern seaboard so far. And I flew over them two days ago. And man, from the air, uh, and, and I'm a real firefighter, these guys have got months of work in front of them. It's just horrendous. The muster you are offering active military personnel, law enforcement, firefighters, all the RFS guys, first responders, there is a very significant discount. Uh, We'll put the service code into the show notes. Tell us about the muster from your perspective, Life. What's going to happen there in Sydney? (laughs) Yeah, we're excited to be there, and I, I, I have followed the fires. Uh, you know, it, it is it's terrible to see that, and uh, I, I know there's some some courageous firefighters out there trying to make a difference and save people's homes and save lives. And so, my hats off to them, and I hope that we can get uh, you know some of those folks that are. Uh, uh, you know, there maybe aren't, aren't on the front lines there can come and join us. We've had a tremendous turnout of firefighters in particular at musters in, um, in, in the United States, along with law enforcement, military, and the bulk, you know, the, the majority of it is generally business leaders. But, uh, of course, it all applies. I mean, the things that we're talking about, leadership is leadership is leadership. And it doesn't matter whether you're leading SEALs on the battlefield, whether or not you're leading a, a, a business team, whether or not you're, you're you know, whether it's a, a startup or a, a major corporation, uh, whether or not you're leading a team of firefighters or a group of law enforcement officers or, or wherever it may be. Uh, that, and that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to dive deep into the leadership principles that we learn on the battlefield and then how to apply them. We always have it's very heavy Q&A so we get a chance to actually uh, engage with leaders to help them solve problems. And, and, and that's the hard part. It's one thing – Jocko always said we make our money in Q&A. It's one thing to read about something or hear someone talking about a situation. It's a whole other thing when you say, hold on a second, well, how does that apply – to me in this situation. And, and that's where you can help people really solve problems. Cause our, our goal is not just to, you know, this isn't a feel good seminar. This isn't, isn't uh, something to just provide inspiration or, or motivation to you. This is something to where you take a really hard look at yourself, realize where you are weak and need to improve uh, and what you can do to actually uh, take ownership of problems and implement a solution that solves those problems so that you and your team can win. And whether that's, you know, w- w- again, whether you're a firefighter or a police officer, whether you're in the military, whether you're in a business, whether you're in, in your community, in your home, in your family, uh, that, that's our goal. And, uh, you know, we speak at, at uh, events all over the world. Uh, I, I love speaking at events and talking to leaders, but there's really nothing like the muster. And this will be our first international muster, you know, coming to Australia. Um, we, we've done them all over the U.S. We've had eight of them in the United States now. And at the last one, we had over 900 leaders um, just recently with us in, in Denver uh, a couple months ago. And, and it was uh, an extraordinary turnout of folks. And, and there's just the people that come to these things are, are willing. They, they, they're there to take that hard look in the mirror, to learn what they can do better. And they want to dominate the universe in whatever arena they might be and. And so just the, the quality of people that come to these things is, is incredible. The reason we're coming to Australia, first and foremost, is because there's been a real demand signal for that. Uh, we've probably had probably at least uh, two or three dozen Aussies who have you know, flown all across the, the Pacific to join us uh, in, in America. So we're excited to come, come to you guys and uh, you know, to, to be in Sydney here uh, in December uh, to be a part of that. What's the muster taught you about your own leadership style, Life, with being you and Jocko talk about the Q&A sessions, you're getting face-to-face with leaders. What have you learned 
about your own leadership style directly from the mustard, do you think? Well, what I love so much about the mustard is I like to talk to leaders. I, I love engaging with leaders. And, you know, Jocelyn and I don't take breaks. I mean, we'll give a, you know, every hour, hour and a half or so, we'll give a give a break where the, the audience gets to go and, you know, make a head call, grab the, get a cup of coffee or, or whatever it is, make a phone call they need to for work related, but we don't take breaks. We jump off the stage and we engage with leaders and people, you know, form up lines and come there to talk and talk about leadership problems and, 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 uh, help us solve, you know, help. They ask us questions that can, can help them solve problems. And so what I love about it is being able to engage with those leaders. I really enjoy that. Uh, and anything, um, Jocko usually tightens me up as far as like time wise, because I spend, uh, a little more time talking to leaders than maybe, uh, we have time for often, but, uh, I love doing it and, uh, and I'll keep doing it. And, uh, it's just, it's an awesome thing. And that's what I love most about mustard. Yeah. I, I'm on the timekeeper's side. I'm, I'm constantly giving Gary the wind up. <laughs> He's the same. He'd talk all day if I let him. <laughs> Right on. Well, look, you got to have that, right? This is cover and move. That's what cover and move is Cover and move. There you go. Keep it snappy. Keep it snappy. Boom, there it is. Thank you. Uh, I put the details in the show notes for the muster. I'll put the details in for Echelon Front. Leif, is there any other contact details that you would like to put into the interwebs of people to find you, Jocko, and the team? If you're interested in coming to muster, you can go to extremeownership.com. Uh, you can go to our website, echelonfront.com. You know, if you want to, uh, follow us on, uh, social media, Jocko's at Jocko Willink, J-O-C-K-O-W-I-L-L-I-N-K. And I'm, uh, on Twitter, I'm, I'm at Leif Babin, Facebook at Leif Babin, L-E-I-F-B-A-B-I-N. And, uh, on Instagram, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, at real Leif Babin, R-E-A-L-L-E-I-F-B-A-B-I-N. So, uh, happy to contact us there and, uh, I hope you guys are going to come and join us at the muster. We are doing a new series now, Leif, where we are international guests who come to our country. We meet them at Bondi Beach and we record live on the promenade at Bondi uh, with fish and chips and an esky. Uh, so if there is any time in your program, we'd like to see you at the muster and or at <laughs> Bondi Beach with you or Dave or Echo, whoever wants to come down, and we will promise you a great show live on the beach sitting on an esky. How does that work? How does that sound? I'd love to do that. If we can make the schedule work, uh, that, that would be pretty awesome. I've always wanted to go to Bondi. I've heard, uh, heard about great surf there and, uh, Jock and I are both surfers. We got some surfers on the team as well. So, oh, uh, if we perfect. could squeeze time in the schedule, we'd uh, love to make that work. Free beer and fish and chips <laughs> as well. I mean, come on, what more can we offer? Very tempting. <laughs> we'll put some Pantera on. That'll, that'll rock the beach. Awesome. Phil Collins. Hi there. This is Phil Collins here. This is awesome. Phil Collins. That's right. This has been an absolute privilege and a true honour to be able to meet and spend time with you in your busy schedule. And I have to say that I didn't say this to Jocko, but for for you and for Jocko and Echo and Dave and all the guys from the books, the shows you do, the work you put into the world as a volunteer firefighter and a deputy captain in my brigade, there's so much stuff I've taken from you guys. I implement both before we go to a fire ground and on the fire ground, which is all thanks to the work you do. So I know I'm amongst millions around the world who, who say that, um, but it's been a real privilege. Thank you for your time. Thanks for what you do. It's, uh, it's been a true honour, mate, and um, look forward to seeing you out here in Australia. Well, I appreciate it. It's been, been an honour for me to be on with you guys and uh, look forward to, to meeting you in person. Thanks for what you do. The Mojo Radio Show. I have to say, after speaking to both those guys... 
It wouldn't take very much convincing after hearing them talk in front of me for a day or two at the muster that I should be listening to them, both physically and verbally imposing, I believe. Yeah, they are. I just like the fact that they they do have a sense of humour. However, they also want to get stuff done and get rid of excuses that we all come up with. And they are very good. I mean, I've listened to Jocko now for probably six, seven odd years, and he's legit. People around him talk about how legit he, that's exactly how he is on the air or on Spotify or with Akira. Any of those things is exactly the same way as he is at jiu-jitsu rolling with his partners there, whether he's hunting with Joe Rogan and Cameron Hay. He's exactly the same away from the mic as he is on the mic. And I don't know, I rate that. And I think Leif is a different personality. But I think he comes at the same comes at the same issues from a different direction. But they're both just gold. I mean, that was such such a privilege to have them both on. And what a get back to back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There'd be some there'd be some podcasts that'd be happy to have one. We get that, what, that was us. <laughs> Thanks, that JP. <laughs> In the sunshine, where your friends meet, sweet up, and yes, you have a rocking good time. Sit back, relax, and groove in the summertime. All right, so before we wrap this up, summer starts next week. The Mojo Radio Show mm. Rock Patrols are loaded up for mm. summer, as we say in the business. Patreon supporters, we have got some Rock Patrol gear and we're going to stop by your place and drop off some swag. Now, in the bag, this is pretty cool, we get cricket bars from our mates at Grillo and we know the nutritional density of crickets loaded with protein. You're, you're actually a big cricket fan, aren't you, so to speak? <laughs> I am a big cricket fan. There's cricket powder... Well, it's actually a cricket powder spirulina mix that goes into my smoothies every morning. Nice. But yeah, huge fan of it. We have got coffee, of course, from our good mate Pete Harrison of Fish River Roasters. Matter of fact, I'm drinking one now. <laughs> now, we've also got Revies. Now, Revies were a guest on the show, gee, back in the day. And these are like a little caffeine strip that are fueled up with caffeine. But rather than have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, have one of these little strips before something you need to get fired up for. You, you and the boys at the Withered Oaks, you like your revies, don't you? We, we, I got sent some, um, some complimentary ones when we did that interview all those years ago and we used them up. So we, we actually go down to the chemist warehouse and buy them now. Absolutely, we're big fans of it. We've also got some chili bomb. Now, this is, this is pretty cool. This is a little chili bomb travel pack that's in the Rock Patrol packs. And you clip it onto your toolie, your workout belt, with a little carabiner. And inside, it's full of hot chili sauce. And the other day, I was on a telephone call. Awesome. It was sitting on the studio desk, and I just happened to put some of my finger up on my tongue. I had to do everything I could to concentrate to not have to run outside because it's, it's good. It's good. Are you eating in the studio? Well, it was just a it was It was a, it was a lick. Lola, what's going on? Oh, Robbo, get over it, big boy. <laughs> so thank you to Rodney at Chili Bomb for sending that through. And we've also got some travel packs from our good friends at Athletic Greens who've been a very big supporter of the show. The world's yep. most complete supplement for a better you. 75 ingredients in one. It's like an insurance policy is what Tim Ferriss calls it. So we're going to yeah, we'll right. bundle all that into a bag. So how let's let's talk about this. How do our listeners get a hold of a Rock Patrol Summer Swag Pack? Well, how about this? How about I stick a link to our comments page on iTunes at the very top of our Facebook page so people can find it easily. Maybe we could even put it on the website somewhere. Go there, leave a comment, 
we pick the best ones and they cop a swag. Done. The Mojo Radio Show. So we're at the coffee machine working out how we would close this little shindig down today, given the fact we had Jocker last week, late this week. Mm. I think both of them are considered to be the boss. So we haven't had a little bit of Springsteen for a while. I thought this song was very representative of the last couple of weeks. I'm thinking the boss, No Surrender.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of The Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime... To polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.